Oscar Poker. acknowledge that we did uh, record a podcast last weekend but it uh, it didn't feel very good and it was sloppy and I just said suggested to you that we just give up on it and you agreed but uh, largely because I felt very despondent and uh, I didn't have a lot of uh, fire in me because I felt kind of kicked in the stomach about the popularity of room which I am a, uh, a very um, adamant uh, disliker of but it's going to happen, I think, in a big way, and because of this one anecdote that a um, academy um, friend, colleague, who I spoke to this morning, he said that he, number one, he was very impressed by it. He felt that it, even though he um, knows it's a tough sit, he felt it really achieves what it sets out to achieve. It, it makes its impact. You feel you've really seen a movie in a, in a big way. Mm -hmm. And secondly, he was out in the lobby, I guess, you know, going to the bathroom or something, and he saw a woman, or maybe it was after the film, but he saw a woman um, sort of weeping on her own after having seen it. And that told me that that's, 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 it's over. It's going to be a, a Best Picture nominee, I guess. Yeah. I mean, if, if it has that kind of reaction, forget it. It's over. You know, there's no, no point in arguing against it. Yeah, I mean, and it also has so many different um, publicists working on it. <laughs> you know, it really does. It's like Chris Libby and, and Lisa Tabak, and, you know, it's... Um, <laughs> And to be a movie that affecting, uh, all of those things together make it, a, you know, a real force to be reckoned with. So you can expect it in all the major categories. All the magic. What? What else? You're not going to tell me that it's going to get screenplay or direction, are you? Uh, probably not directing. Screenplay, yeah, but probably not directing. Directing's going to be the hardest category. Um, to crack because as you know you have more than five best picture nominees and only five best director nominees right. and that's going to be you know Inaritu, Tom McCarthy um, probably Ridley Scott for The Martian um, David O. Russell maybe Quentin Tarantino you know that those people the, the big guys the big guns are going to get into director so I don't think unless they really like it I, I do not see the director's branch putting room in there although you know we can't discount it i think you and i both underestimated it in telluride i know i did i, I underestimated it, it greatly I saw it. I saw it in toronto oh you saw it in toronto room yeah oh i thought you saw it in telluride well when i saw it in telluride i had it my predictions i had it way down on number at number 10 uh -huh. um even as or even as not even on my predictions list at all but it it really is showing kind of more broad appeal than i think you think and um I think because in the end, Room is um, is a story that tells the whole story. It doesn't leave you hanging. It really sort of makes it more about the two of them, and it settles that relationship. It works through the mother and the daughter relationship, and the father and the daughter relationship. It, it works through all of those things, and that's like what the Academy likes. They like ordinary people, you know, movies like that that are character driven. Um, when it's satisfying on on every level for them, but um, you think they're gonna like that curly-haired Canadian actor with a flannel shirt when he comes on? <laughs> you think they're gonna go? Oh wow, I like this guy. I think they'll probably the really kicking up in energy. You know, well, they'll they'll look at him like he's a little bit strange, you know, um, at first, but then they'll they'll recognize that he that he isn't you know uh, a good guy, mm -hmm. and that the kid likes him more importantly. So. It's, it, I guess it's going to be for this. It's going to be like the, for me that room is like the artist, which I couldn't understand why people liked it so much. 
it's going to be like the King's Speech. It's going to, I guess it's going to be a very persistent thing. And I might as well just try and be gentlemanly about it while, rather than be um, um, abrasive and, and, and uh, you know, an enemy of it. There's no point. I'm not no, going to No, but you have to at least be right. And you're not right about this. I'm you're... not. No, there is no right. There is no right. I know what is right for me. No, I know no, you're right. wrong. You're wrong about the feminized critics and the women thing. You're I'm wrong not about wrong. that. It's a completely woman-related thing. That It was written by a woman. It's about a woman character. It's about maternal feelings for a young child. It's about... Um, you know, it's written by a woman. It's about a woman. Yeah, but but because it has it has a, a, a female driven story, it doesn't mean that it. Don't, you just talked to that academy member guy, right? Definitely. He liked it. Is he gay? No. Is he a feminized critic? No. Is he a woman? No. There you go. So there's going to be a lot more like him. Okay, so it isn't just about that. If you didn't like the movie, fine, but you can't say that it's this when it's this. It's this other thing. It's a movie that they like. And just because it has a woman in it doesn't mean that, that they're not going to like it. For one thing, they it, all want to sleep with Brie Larson. Uh, so she's a hot, sexy young actress, you know. Right. And she's going to be out playing the game. She's yep. going to be there in her tight jeans, you know, looking <laughs> sexy. And, <laughs> and she's going to charm the pants off of them, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would just say don't be dishonest about it, but, but don't, like, I've go out of your way. And I've already said it. There's no. I'm not going to do this thing. But I. What the, the difference is, and I think I'm being realistic and and trying to be as uh, accepting of the way the world works, is that I'm not going to persistently write about it as, as something that is to give me a lot of uh, discomfort to watch and mm -hmm. think about. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that's as far as I can go. I mean, I can't. Uh, I, I don't think there's any point in in, in modifying. What you really think? Um, I think you can do it uh, deftly, and uh, and perhaps not obsessively, which is what I plan to not do. I don't I don't plan plan to be obsessive about it, mm. because I, I I understand and I've read the writing on the wall. So I'll let it go with that. Yeah. So um, okay. So let's move on from that topic um, to okay. the next topic. Which the, the next topic being quickly Martian, which you mentioned Ridley, Ridley Scott as a potential best director nominee and. I presume you think it's also best picture material. It is not, not best picture material. This is a entertaining movie meant for people who like to be entertained. It's about, it's a basically a Jerry Bruckheimer movie with, uh, you know, let's save the the guy. Let's see what we can do. Let's. It's an ensemble piece with clever lines. It's got very smart science, smart technology. It it appeals to the brighter people out there who are going to uh, appreciate and understand what's happening technically and uh, understanding botany and understanding all the things that Matt Damon all on his own has to figure out. But it's not a, a stupid movie at all. It's a very satisfying entertainment. It's not uh, Oscar-level stuff. You know, it's just, well, it's just, that might be true. That might be true. And when you're thinking about Best Picture, what you have to do is you have to put yourself in the, fr <sighs> in the frame of mind of five movies, not ten. Because people always think, oh, because it's more than five that that means that they're going to pick 10. They don't. They pick five, each of them. So you have to think of your average Academy voter and what movie is he going to like enough? They're asked to pick, be clear about this. In the ballot, they're said they're told to pick five and give a numerical value. To that's right. And they, but they only get five. So that's why you end up with a lot of these very sappy, kind of sappy driven. And, and a lot of the dark movies like last year's Nightcrawler, Foxcatcher and Gone Girl didn't make the list because they didn't. They made the Producers Guild list because the producers had 10 slots. So they were more free to pick movies that they liked versus movies that they were passionate about. Mm -hmm. The Academy only has five. So you have to think, what movies are these, are this, this demographic, what are they going to pick as their top five movies of the year? And that's much harder to do than, than thinking about um, 10. Right. So in that instance, when I'm thinking of five, I'm, you know, I'm kind of on the fence about The Martian, honestly. I agree with you that it is everything that you say it is, but I also think that it's likable enough, and he's a popular enough director, and if it's successful, as in it gets good reviews and it makes a lot of money, I think there's a really good chance it could be some people's top five best film of the year, but, but that's a long shot at this point. I mean, we still have uh -huh. a lot of movies to go through, uh -huh. um, and we still have to redefine where the movies we've already seen fit on that list, like Carol and Brooklyn and Spotlight and Truth and all these other movies we've seen. So I agree with you. It has an outside shot. I'm predicting it right now as a strong contender only because I haven't seen the other movies coming up. Uh -huh. But I'm sure once we see those, there's a really good chance it'll drop off the list and become 
mm-hmm. you know, two maybe two producers guild ish to be an Oscar movie. You know. Mm-hmm. That said, I, I if someone were to say, "Well, you want to come see The Martian with me?" and uh, he has an extra ticket, I would go. But I'm not hungry hungry to see it. I, I, I don't. I definitely don't want to see it three times or four times. Whereas I could see Spotlight three, four times easily and, and have a good, you know, nurturing time, which is a good intro into the screening of the special screening of Spotlight that happened on Friday night at the Academy. And it was a relatively small crowd, right? You were about, about 100 people. Yeah, I barely made it because I was late getting over there and I almost didn't go. But the, the publicist told me I could get there late since I saw it already. And I knew that they were having a Q&A with the real reporters behind the film. And they were all right. there. And it was about a hundred people, and um, seeing it a second time, you know, kind of made it a lot stronger of a best picture winner than it it had when I saw it. I tell you, right? I always thought, yeah, it's a nominee. It's a great movie. It's probably you know the movie that nobody can say anything bad about. But I guess I didn't see its its um, strong points until I watched it again, and then I saw that Mark Ruffalo's part really does pop, and he has the most dramatic, most affecting scene in the movie. And he's probably the only actor I think that's going to get a nomination. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that Michael Keaton can, can compete with the rest of the, unfortunately, I think he's great in it, but um, there's so many male performances. There's so many supporting and lead that, you know, only the strongest will survive. And I think that, um, that Mark Ruffalo's got you think, it. You're so, saying he'll pop in the best supporting category. Yes? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I think that's entirely possible. You know who my favorite is in that entire film? It's funny. Uh, I, I love everybody. I love Keaton. Everybody's great. But you know who I really, really like is Liev Schreiber. I know, me too. I think he's my favorite also. But his part isn't big enough, unfortunately. But he's the best. He really is the best. He just Nobody pops like Ruffalo, and that's why he's the one that's going to get. Um, it's like in The Departed how Mark Wahlberg was the guy who popped, even though everybody was really, really good. Um, yeah. The thing yeah. is about Spotlight is that... It's such a good movie. It's it, it's it doesn't have a single misstep. It doesn't have a mistake in it. It's just perfect. It is a perfect yeah. movie. And I don't know if movies like that win, um, but it sure seems heads and shoulders above everything else at the moment. It really does. It feels like there's mm-hmm. no, you know, it's set the bar pretty damn high, and I don't know what movie can top it in terms of everything about it, the pacing, the acting, the writing, the subject matter. It's pretty hard-hitting. The only thing it doesn't really have is those emotional highs that um, Oscar movies tend to have, those really extreme emotional highs. It doesn't have that. It doesn't have two things that all the president's men had. Uh, When people think of all the president's men, to which it has been uh, frequently compared, uh, there are two two scenes, two elements that really pop. One is the scene where... um, where Dustin Hoffman tricks the secretary of just of Dardis, the the district attorney <laughs> in Miami, mm-hmm. you know, gets him to go out. That's a that's a that's a invented scene. It never happened, oh. but it works works as a as a as a bit in a movie, and and it's and it's satisfying, and people remember that. The second thing is that paranoid, kind of gloomy sounding soundtrack that made you feel something was out there. Yeah. Right. something malevolent, you know, that, that, that feeling. Uh, they didn't use that kind of score for Spotlight because it's not really about bad guys. Well, it is, of course, but it's, it's more about, I think that the, the current in that film is what really makes it special is that it's really about compassion mm. and, 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 and morality. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's about the unseen, except for those two victims. It's about the unseen victims. And you really do feel them all the way through. Nobody ever says, boy, we got to do something with these victims, guys. This is really bad stuff. Nobody once articulates that thought, but it's there the entire time. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I was, I was going to write something about this, but I don't know if I'll write it. I'll tell you instead, which is that if you compare Truth and Spotlight, you see two movies about, really, they're both about the truth. They're both about uncovering the truth. They're both about reporters uncovering the truth. They're both about journalism, and they're about old journalism, spotlight, and new-ish journalism, which is um, television journalism and internet journalism kind of bleeding into truth. Truth is about the new way the news is delivered to people and gotten um, post-9-11 world. And um, spotlight is about the pre-9-11, really pre-internet um, when journalism was still journalism, quote unquote, uh, you know, David, Bol- <laughs> wait David- a minute, we're only talking, um, 
14 years ago. Yeah, David Pullman was like, you know, oh, that was 2002. But see, I remember 2002, it really hadn't taken hold. People were still talking about the Internet versus... I mean, I don't even think that... Um, the 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 blogs hadn't really started to take over the way they have now. Opinion journalism hadn't really, but mm. really the blogs drove the story of truth. And the the difference between the two movies significantly, as Scott Feinberg would say, or uh, Marlo Stern would say, the difference between them is that one was about you know journalist ethics and doing a story right and getting the thing, and the other was about sloppy reporting and going and you know and rushing the deadline and all of that. But and that's kind of true in that television journalism is different, and, and when it's ratings driven as it has been over the last since 9/11 really, because 9/11 yeah. gave us that, or, or since the OJ trial, once we got the the news cycle going and the way CNN is about, they wanted to get it out there as quickly as possible to get the ratings. Ratings have never been more important, and that's why television is a total waste pile of shit right now, because it's all about ratings, right? But yeah. the real difference between the two movies is that they're both about truth, they're both about journalism, they're both about stories. They're, one is about how the editorial team was trusted and it was handled well, and the other is about how, how things can go really, really wrong. So one, the story goes right, and one, the story goes wrong. And I'm not comfortable bl just blaming and laying that all on Mary Mapes and saying, okay, done deal, just take her out and everything's going to be fine. You know, no, no, it's not going to be fine because that kind of cycling um, is being done every single day in newsrooms now. It's just that it's the normal. It's become the normal. Um, so mm -hmm. anyway, mm -hmm. the norm, the normal, this, the norm, whatever. <laughs> this, this friend, colleague of mine, who was at the same screening on Friday night, um, did um, did tell me something uh, during this morning's conversation, and he said basically what you might have ex expected an Academy person to say, what you have heard before from Academy people or other films, which is that uh, something that has been very warmly received by journalists of film festivals uh, is sunk down a little bit when it comes to people like this guy and yeah, his crowd. Right. They are not knocked out by it, he said. He said that there, it's it's liked, but nobody's knocked out by it. And yeah. he says it doesn't seem to have that extra crescendo-like uh, feeling that that really, uh, you mm -hmm. know, yeah, sla know, slam dunkers. And I said, well, like what? Like what kind of? Do you remember? I, I mentioned to him, do you remember how all the presidents' men ends? It doesn't end with any big bang thing. It just, you know, they they've uh, found out that Haldeman was the fifth guy. They're standing on. Jason Robard's front lawn. He's kind of testily saying, "Well, you guys did good work. Go home, get rest, get rested for 15 minutes, and get back to work. Our asses are on the line." Yeah, but so, Jeff, you know what won that year, right? Uh, what won in '76? Uh, I don't remember. Dun 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 so yeah your argument for all the president's men doesn't hold water when you're talking about, because that's it that these guy guy like this is going to go for rocky every time you know so um longingly and lovingly of rocky right now it's, it's it's a good film it's a good film but nobody that i know says you know it keeps it on their shelf and rewatches it and talks about it what a great film it was it just happened to hit in the right way at the right moment. Yeah. No, it's a good movie. I watched it last night again and just to, to remember it. And, and, you know, it's just he's so likable. You can't help but like old Rocky. You know, he gets the dog. He's such a kind of a loser. He's just a great character. Um, mm -hmm. Just, you know, you really immediately like this guy. Right. And that's why it was such a force to be reckoned with. He really was like the, the art the movie, like Argo or the artist. It was just one of those like cute, likable characters that... Um, but it was it was a perfectly fine film, and the fact that Sylvester Stallone wrote it, I think, is really cool. And but yeah, I mean, that was my thinking when I saw Spotlight. I thought, as good as it is, and everybody's going to call it the front runner, and mm -hmm. you know, everybody's going to rave about it. That's only going to build resentment for it. That's that's how front runner status works. Is if you come out of a film festival with everybody raving about it, people like Academy guys go, well, that's what they think, and that's not what I think, you know. Mm -hmm. And then they want to pick what they think is, is good. So we don't he, know what that talking is. talking about the whole thing about um, about people get caught up in their own ether at a film festival. Mm -hmm. and But you have to come down to earth when you show it to Academy members. It's a different thing. And he's saying good marks. Nobody had anything bad to say. It. Not quite good enough to really be 
anything that he would consider to be an absolute front runner, runner thing. It's right. good. Well, that's yeah. what they always say. But then when they see every the way that this new system works, where you know a movie like Birdman or or The Artist or The King's Speech or any of these other movies that Argo, for instance, nobody thought that about Argo either. They liked the movie. But they weren't going, oh, yeah, this is going to win Best Picture. They were like, yeah, that's a really good movie. Let's see mm -hmm. what else you got, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then everything else was seen, and then they flipped back, and they go, you know what? Argo was good. Argo was best. And that's what – the only thing I worry about with Spotlight is it doesn't have that rooting factor. You know, you always need that. Like with, with Argo, it was Ben Affleck got snubbed, you know. The mm -hmm. King's Speech, it was rooting for the poor stuttering king. Slumdog Millionaire was the poor Indian children. I want to root for them, you know, in the – Oscar story about going straight to video. Um, uh, there's 12 Years a Slave, first black film director, you know. Um, so Birdman was kind of like the rooting factor was, A, it wasn't boyhood, and B, it was about saving the film industry. So, you know, I don't know what the rooting factor for Spotlight's going to be. The, the director doesn't have, like, an Oscar story. The movie doesn't really have an Oscar story. Um, so It's a comeback story. He made the worst film of his career with The Cobbler. <laughs> and he turned around and look what he did. You know, it's like a kind of a nice bounce back story. When you yeah, think about it, it is. It's just not on a big scale bounce back. It's not like Ben Affleck getting director snub, you know. Uh -huh. um, but that doesn't matter. I still think it's, I mean, my feeling was the second time I saw it that it's got the stuff. Yeah, it doesn't have those passionate highs. It doesn't have the rooting factor. It is poised to be overtaken by another movie for sure. But nobody knows what that movie is yet, you know. If there is going to be one, we don't know what it is. So I would never look at Spotlight and go, it's Schindler's List. It's going to win no matter what. It's going to charge through the season and win every prize, you know. that's. Huh. I'm not going to make that mistake again. I thought that last year with Boy. <laughs> I'm yeah. certainly not going down that road. So, mm -hmm. you know. So, what did you think of? Uh, let's review our reactions. Uh, did you post something about the walk? We both saw it yesterday morning, and most yeah. people had their reactions. What did you think in a, in a nutshell? Well, I thought kind of what you thought, which is that the first hour is is impossible to sit through, except for the fact that you know what's coming. It's kind of like really bad sex, and then waiting for the, <laughs> the orgasm. <laughs> you know, you sit there and you endure it. Come on, come on, looking at your watch, and then finally, no, no, I'm just kidding. Um, the, but it is kind of like it. It, uh, the beginning is is almost intolerable. But you know it's Zemeckis, and you know that that World Trade Center is going to be incredible, and so you patiently wait. Mm -hmm. for him to get on that wire and when he does it it absolutely lives up to and surpasses expectations and i feel as you do that for that reason it ha you have to tell people to go see it it's, yeah it's yeah. just a once in a lifetime kind of cinematic experience but you do have to get through that first hour <laughs> yeah actually uh it's uh two hours you know two hours and three minutes mm. so it's really the last i mean i i don't know exactly what it is but it's around the last 20 25 minutes um, there's about five minutes after he, after Philippe T, played by uh, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, is uh, comes down. But it's basically, I th and it's really, uh, I think it was somebody like Michael Phillips, the chucker. He timed it. He said the actual uh, sequence, the actual walking of, on the wire sequence, is only about 15 or 16 minutes. Mm. But it's right in that. That's basically once that begins, it's it's mind blowing. And um, I. Just thinking back of how I felt <laughs> as the 3D camera looks down mm. at the, what is it, nearly a quarter of a mile down, it's, um, and uh, have you ever experienced this, uh, This um, you know, we, they say it's a very common thing if you really have your pores open. When you are standing in any tall space, I can remember this happening when I was showing up for an interview back in the early 80s at the CBS building, and I was on the 20-something Floor. And I happened to be standing at those sheer glass walls that go right to the, and I was looking down, and it just disorients you, it throws you. And there's this feeling that we have about wanting to, of course, not die and not to be exposed to the, to the threat of falling. But there's also a little part of us that wants to, you know, coast and, and spread our wings and fly and be free, you know. And there's mm -hmm. that tension between those two. Uh, that's what the disorientation of, of vertigo or whatever you want right. to call it, it really throws you. And I remember one time being on a balcony, I wrote about this, uh, on 57th Street, this is as vivid as it happened yesterday, and I remember looking down at 57th Street and all of a sudden being seized by this fear that I was getting from just being near such a great height and looking down that I 
that I instinctually got down on my knees and then down on my stomach, and I literally crawled along the, the, the balcony back to the sliding glass door and into the living room. I didn't trust myself. I was scared shitless of being out there. Wow. I think we all have that feeling. Definitely. It's, it's really, you, you don't yeah. trust yourself. I don't anyway. If you're afraid of heights, and, and both of us were just like, ee, ee, <laughs> <through the> whole, <laughs> to that whole section, just like covering our eyes. It was like... Because you do, I remember like reflexively lifting my hand at one point when one of the 3D objects flies in. I mean, that it, it, it's, it is like an amusement park ride, I suppose, because yes, it has, it, you could say it has all the spiritual elements if you want. You can have the spiritual component if you want when you're watching that. You, you can say, well, I, you know, I can really get into this Philip Petit thing and how he, how into it he is and how spiritual it is for him. And the 9-11 thing, which we can talk about in a minute, because I know you have things to say about that. But, Or you can just look at it as a, as a pure visual experience. Just, I'm on the coolest ride ever, and I'm, I'm looking at this. I'm, I'm looking down. I'm in a place where I would never be in a million years. So by the end, I was so frustrated and kind of angry with him. I wanted him to just fall and die. <laughs> I was like, why do you keep turning around and walking again? Get off of the fucking wire. <laughs> Yeah. Even though I know he makes it, I know he didn't die. Everybody knows that if they watch the documentary, but I still was just, it was, I felt like the cops did. I just was like, get off, get off. Yeah. But it was still, it was thrilling. I, I have to, I have to put that as one of my top, you know, cinematic experiences of the year just because of that sequence, which is yeah, exceptional. I you know, I agree. It's really, um, I mean, I, I loved it in, in a way, the way he toyed with the police, he would get just close enough so they can't quite mm. reach him, but just close. Then he would lift up the, the pole, switch around and then head back and just, you know, just oh play with God, them like a dog plays with a, you know, uh, no, like a cat plays with a dog, a dog on, on a leash. He can only go so far. And then the cat just sits there licking himself and saying, well, you can't do anything about it. So yeah. it was really good. So now let's talk about the bad things. <laughs> the bad things were he spends an awful lot of time in in Gay Paris. <laughs> Hello, I am Philippe Petit, and I'm going to take you on the journey of my life. <laughs> it's like that all the way through. And, and there are people who do want to see uh, Pinocchio. They want to see Jiminy Cricket. They want to see that type of uh, entertainment. And to his discredit, uh, maybe to his financial credit, but his right. artistic discredit, that's the way Zemeckis chooses to make this film. He completely uh, bypasses. Someone said last night when I was saying that I found it appalling that he made a film like this, the way it plays and it panders and it cutes and, and does all these highs and lows that it will get people in the seat of their pants. <clears throat> he says, this guy, Jeffrey Wells, doesn't seem to understand that you need to exaggerate and dramatize things more so in a in a narrative format than you would say if you were making a film like um, man and wire you, you have to emphasize and dra dramatize and my retort was oh you mean the way they over dramatize in spotlight which right. of course they don't i was being sardonic they don't dra over dramatize they just play it straight and it works completely but you don't need to over dramatize it because Man on Wire is, is a terrifying film to watch. I mean, because the drama comes out of who Philippe Petit really was. He wasn't Petit. He wasn't this kind of funny, you know, Pepe La Pure, <laughs> or, you know, the mouse in Ratatouille. He wasn't that character. He was, he was intense, and he was a live wire, and he was a little bit... He was insane. I mean, if you watch him talk, he is a guy like you would never meet in a million years. And I don't think that Joseph Gordon-Levitt, as good as he was, captured him i don't think he captured the spirit of that person that i saw in man on wire and i think a, a different actor maybe could but i don't know if you could ever really get he's so unique that guy i mean he's well so unique he's unique he's he is a person unto himself and he is extreme and they don't they don't come off the boat like that very often yeah so i i think that the key to the drama in the movie would have been to capture uh, him better but on the other hand I can't really give the movie too much criticism because like I say you know you just kind of throw up your hands when he gets up on there because it's so great that um, I don't think it's really worth complaining about since the payoff is so good and so high you know um, a, another screenwriter friend mentioned this morning that he has heard from a woman who happened to attend the New York Film Festival screening of um, of, uh, the, of, the, of the walk 
and that her, she had a very um, um, difficult reaction. She basically said that um, she got nauseous and disoriented during this final sequence we're speaking of. And that uh, she basically said, I couldn't take the 3D, and the whole finale gave me motion sickness <laughs> and flashbacks to seeing people falling from the Twin Towers. Oh. And I wasn't alone in this reaction, she said. And I thought that, well, this is probably the same type of viewer who um, nine years ago, I believe it was. What year was um, United 93? That was 06, God, I think. Yeah, it was 06, actually. And there was a whole crowd of people who were saying, too soon, too soon. Right. You know, this, uh, we can't do this. Is, leave us alone. Don't, don't hit us with something like that. It was only five years ago. We need time to heal, you know. And I was saying, you need five years to heal from, from, from just seeing a movie about... And yes, that was, that's what they're... I think it's the same too soon crowd. They don't ever want to deal with this. I don't think that they, they will, but I, I do think that he offers a little bit of, um, uh, you know, I, I, of psych, psyche massage in that movie for people like that, a little bit of a, a chance to mourn. Mm -hmm. um, I have to admit, I teared up at the end at that sappy scene. I teared up because I, I just thought, you know... Um, that was sad. It was sad that, that, that that's the fate of those towers and the fate of those Americans and, and what happened well, to us. Let's and be how... clear to those who have not seen it that it doesn't in any way directly allude to, to the horror of 9-11. It does. There, he just talks about a pass that he was given, a, a right. visitor pass to the observation deck, I believe, was the South Tower. And uh, an official gave it to him. And after he you know, went through his whole thing and uh, you know, became famous, uh, the guy took the pass and crossed out the expiration date on it and wrote the word forever. Now, if they had just stopped right there, for he had written, you're good to go to the World Trade Center Tower forever, as long as you want, we all would have gotten it. But instead, Demekis feels obliged to then pan over to the two buildings and stare at them for about 20 seconds. Yeah, well, that's the part where I teared up. I'm sorry to say I fell for it. But, you know, the thing about that, um, he could have ended it on Philip Petit's doing his walk for the kids. That's how I thought he was going to end it. But he didn't. He chose to end it on the 9-11, on the towers and yeah. the memorial for them. And that, mm -hmm. it got me. I have to admit, it got me. Because I'm not, you know, I know it's a symbol of capitalism. And I know it's a symbol of American imperialism and blah, blah, blah. All of that's true. But... Mm -hmm. You know, it's just all those people died and all those poor little doggies that went in there and died and all those firefighters that went in trying to rescue them and died and all the, the fallout and the way that our country changed. Like, it just all sort of comes rushing back, I think, in those last few minutes. And, mm -hmm. and that and that is the movie's only really hardcore emotional moment, you know, other than him being on the wire and how scary that is. But you're right that he doesn't really go there. Until James, that point. The James Marsh documentary, which, by the way, I, I watched. It's yeah, I have Amazon Prime. Yeah, I watched it too, yeah. So it's right there for free anyway. Mm -hmm. So, But as you know, Marsh's documentary doesn't... He knows that we all have these feelings that are never going to go away for the rest of our lives. You don't need to nudge anybody and, 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 and try and prompt this recollection, this, 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 whole, this nightmare that we all live through. It's there. It's obviously there. So you don't need to do anything. But Zemeckis believes that you have to, that you need to, like, reach out and give people a little nudge in the, in the, in the ribs so that they feel something. And you're saying, well, yeah, but it got me. It did, I'm sorry to say. But, you know, this movie actually could have... If he hadn't... If the first half hadn't been so, like, cartoony and terrible, like Par uh, Disneyland Paris, this movie might have been a contender to win because of that emotional impact at the end. I mean, it actually could have been on the level of that if yeah. if he hadn't ma hadn't done such a throwaway in the beginning. I don't know why it all had to be made so silly. There's nothing silly about Philippe Pettit. I mean, he's weird and he's strange, but he's not silly. You know, he's not that guy. He's very serious about what he's yeah. doing. And maybe to Zemeckis it's not a serious thing, a guy who wants to walk on wire and stuff like that. But he's risking his life every time he does it. He's almost committing suicide every time he goes up on one of those things. You know, and that is crazy. And he does it fearlessly. And if you watch him in the documentary, you see him getting up on that fearlessly. The guy has no fear. Um, well, I think, actually, I got the feeling that his, his fear is quite real, but he doesn't let the fear take hold hmm. and he concentrates to such an extent that if you were to just give in to what we all would naturally feel when we're looking down a quarter of a mile of, at, at, at you know falling and oblivion and, and horrible death he just doesn't let himself even start to go there yeah. it's all about focus on what 
on the on the magic and the and the and the poise and the balance, the Zen of that thing that he's doing. I, I just, it's wonderful to to know that that's that's what you do when you're out there writing something from your heart. You know, you you're you're risking what? You're risking being called a fool or a bad writer or you know, you're there's a certain element of risk that any person that's performing in any capacity is doing. Mm -hmm. You have to just say, I'm not gonna let that fear, that concern about how good I am or how articulate, how eloquent. I'm just gonna go with the feeling, I'm gonna shape it as best I can, and I'm not gonna let that those fears dog me. Those fears, incidentally, I should I'm telling you this from from memory. When I was struggling as a would-be journalist in the late seventies in New York City, I was dogged by those fears every time I sat down. Mm. And it and it in, imprisoned me. It it froze me. And I didn't overcome that feeling for like three years, four years. It just was awful to have to struggle through that. So I really respect someone who, like Philippe Pichy, he understands that you cannot go there. And anybody who's really going to be informed, I know that you know what I'm I do know about. what you're talking about. I wish that the movie had given us a chance to sit in contemplation with him and his desires and his the way he changed and who he became to want to do that. Right. But the whole time, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is talking at us and telling us how he's feeling and telling us what he's doing and telling us who these people are and where he's going and what's happening on screen. Like, why do we need to hear all that? I don't <laughs> understand. He, just, he won't shut up. He's like, hi, I'm Philippe Petit, and this is my friend. This is my accomplice, and this is what I was doing walking on the wire, and all these people were standing below. It's like, we see all the people standing. <laughs> we don't need to know what, you know, we didn't need the voiceover uh Part At of all. It, that's I, all. I completely agree. There's this uh, passage that I quoted from David Jenkins, who writes for Little White Lies, a British film site. Pretty good, pretty good writer. He says, there's a feeling that Zemeckis is in constant doubt that his audience might dismiss mm. the story as whimsical or inconsequential, who cares? And so his screenplay employs a narration whose purpose appears to make sure that even a scintilla of ambiguity is neutralized on site. That's, We're told exactly what to feel, and you know, that's it. Children. That is absolutely. He hit it right on the head, and he didn't need to fear. I don't think he needed to fear people um, not getting it. I think, like you said, everybody understands that fear, and more than that, I think we wanted a chance to feel what it's like to be a guy who wants to risk your life to to walk on one of those high wires. Like if that had been the whole part of the setup. Mm -hmm us getting to know who he was and, and the tension and the conflict would have been, could he do this? Could he actually do this World Trade Center, his coup that he called it, you know? Yeah. But he wanted to just take so much for granted going up there that his it was almost as though his internal life didn't matter. We didn't really find out or hear about all of that stuff until he's up there mm -hmm. and he starts talking about it. And, you know, all that wonderful stuff where he bows to the police and he does all that. It's like, or, you know, he bows to the wire. The wire is calling out to him. All that stuff is missing from the whole first part of the movie. Mm -hmm. And that's so much. If you watch Man on Wire, you see that so much a part of who he was. And um, so I think he, he, he definitely didn't make a, as good a movie as he could have. And yeah. I know he has it in him to make a better movie than that. But at the mm -hmm. same time, the second half is really, really worth, worth your time, worth anyone's time. It's great. It's not the second half. It's, no. the last, it's the last fifth of the film. Four fifths of it are not that great. <laughs> okay, four fifths. I mean, you could really just cut all of that and just watch the part where he goes up. That could be a great short film, in fact. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I absolutely love. I, I presume that that was a set that they built on the soundstage, the uh, the tower, or I don't. Mm. Maybe it was all uh, in in a, in a computer, and none of it was real. But it was really wonderful. That feeling. I've never been on the top of those two towers. Ugh. I was up there with my sons once, way back in 99 or something. And we went up and had our pictures taken at a special little photo salon. And But boy, I would have loved to have been on top. Just that feeling of titanic size, that, that amazing feeling of uh, being on top of something really quite exceptional yeah. in, in the annals of architecture. So. I was watching a 9-11 documentary the other day, um, and it was so sad. It was. They were talking about the people who worked up there and how when you're up there, you can feel the towers swaying because of the breeze. You can feel them. And everybody knew that. And some people even got seasick up there at the very top and that they were above the clouds. And so when it rained, they couldn't see the rain. 
the mm. the moisture would just collect on the windows because they were so far up and they had to look down and they saw the clouds. I mean, mm. and that you kind of capture a little bit of that when when the seagull comes up to him. You know, that that's a great scene too, when the seagull flies right into his face. I mean, that's just uh, that's fantastic. You know, there was uh, in in the doc. There's no mention of a uh, helic helicopter flying right oh, over him. Okay, uh, that is in the film. That is absolutely horrible that that they threw that in. Building I, tension and pressure, and you know, something that they never would have done. Jim Cameron did a lot of that in Titanic. As authentic as the film was, and as much as he wanted mm -hmm. to make it seem exactly like the ship, there were things that he did that were just just done for audience's sake. You know, to to build tension. Mm. Um, mm. Like, give me a break. The guy would have been watching Kate Winslet and Leo DiCaprio kissing, and that's how he missed seeing the iceberg. <laughs> actually, I, I like the joke of that, actually. <laughs> Leo and getting a little kind of, that was, that's hot, you know. Yeah, but come oh, on. Oh, my God, there's, we just killed the ship. Okay. I, <laughs> I hated that. It made me so mad when I first saw it. But, um, but so the walk, what do you think? It's just forget it for best picture because of that oh. first part? Totally forget it. Yeah. It's just going to be a mainstream popcorn movie like The Martian, and there's going to be a certain... Everybody's going to... I can't imagine, as you were mentioning, particularly younger viewers will probably want, just for the thrill element, uh, want to see it just for the last 25 minutes. So there's no question it's going to be a popular film. I would make a point of seeing that. I don't care what, if I had not seen it yesterday, if I was just... Absolutely. Same here. There's something about the technology now that makes you want to see these things when they're really spectacularly done, as this one is. And you mentioned the woman getting um, sick. I, I actually, I'm not going to say that she's totally out of her mind because I felt the same sort of sensation that I felt with gravity, like the, the 3D combination and the heights. Um, it can make you a little bit sick if you're that kind of person. But that's also the kind of thing that gets people into the theater. <laughs> When they hear, it was so, you know, it made me sick. The special effects made me sick. You know, that's the first thing teenagers want to hear, and they'll go rushing to see Yeah, that. right. Yeah. So it's actually a good thing. But, but yeah, older people should be warned. Academy members should be warned. It's going gonna, it's gonna to freak them out. <laughs> I mean, not freak them out, but it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt, you know, some of them, the older ones. I'm going to make a point if I can. Uh, you know, I mean, they're going to have more screen. I'm going to go see it again. I, maybe I won't sit through it. I'll, maybe I'll go out and you know, answer messages on my phone. But the last half hour, last 40 minutes, I'm going in there. Oh, yeah, it's, it's Monday, tomorrow, the All Media. Okay. Yeah. yeah I'd forgotten about the invite to that. But that's, uh, I really do, uh, you know, there's no question about it. So, so what is the, uh, um, what's the other thing? Oh, yeah, have you seen um, uh, the, uh, that, that film that I'm so high on that nobody seems to care about, which is... Um, no, I haven't seen it. I haven't, but tell me about it. It's just a, a wonderful, uh, it's called Drunk Stone, Brilliant Dead, and it's a wonderful uh, history, uh, amusing and, and punchy and, and, you know, entertaining history of the whole um, a movement of comedy that basically uh, was ignited movie-wise with National Lampoon's um, Animal House in 78. And uh, because the, the seed of that whole uh, anarchic uh, kind of low-rent guys with sexual obsessions and you know, getting drunk and basically this animalistic behavior being the being something that you in, uh, embrace and you feel, oh yeah, that's me. I, I could, you know, my friends are like that, and and Caddyshack and all that that told wave of humor that really has not really left us. Uh, you know, low rent humor, uh, Porky's, all those movies that that began with that film and that came out of ironically one of the most sophisticated uh, magazines involving um, satire and um, and <clears throat> puncturing legends and iconoclastic attitudes about everything, which, of course, was embraced by the whole 60s generation. So it's really about the, the launch of that whole thing, and it began with some very elite and very brilliant uh, writers at Harvard, and it wasn't some, mm. you know, um, uh, working man thing. It was about elite humor, and it was brilliant in its uh, first, what, four or five years, 71 through 75, that, that kind of thing. I mean, it still was going pretty well financially, and, and, and it hit the mark every now throughout the late 70s, but it started to really go downhill after uh, the success of Saturday Night Live, which began in 75, and particularly uh, Animal House, because all the talent, the, the best people that worked for the National Lampoon were pulled away by much bigger paychecks and opportunities to do a lot of cocaine and go out to Hollywood and have, you know, a whole different lifestyle and not be these 
guys toiling away in this ad, uh, office on Madison Avenue. Mm. So, but it was a great period, and it's really a, a, a contact time to relive it or, and, and listen to people who are actually there. And it's just a lot of fun. Yeah, oh, great. I'll de- check that out. Definitely check that out. Um, they I, haven't offered to let you see it? or No, I haven't heard a single one? thing, not one email about it, nothing. But... Um, but what about 99 Homes? Did you see that? Everybody seems to be talking about it. I haven't caught a screening yet. I, I keep hoping that they're going to send me a screener or get a screening link, but they don't have that so far. So uh, what did you think of it? Well, I saw it at Telluride last year, and I thought it was um, calculated to, um, in a way that felt um, too obvious. Um, Andrew Garfield seems to gravitate towards playing guys who go through these... Um, uh, moral crises and who suffers over over moral crises and goes through a certain amount of uh, anguish about who he is. This is basically about a, a guy who needs a job, who's lost his construction job, and he takes a job with Michael Shannon, who's excellent, by the way. He's the best mm. thing in it. Mm. Uh, uh, and basically the job is to evict people who haven't, uh, who have fallen by, behind in their mortgage, and, they, oh. and when they go past two or three months, it's uh, they get literally get kicked out, and that's what his job is. It makes him feel bad because it's bad karma doing something like that right. uh, and have that kind of job. But you have to ask yourself: step back two steps. Why did you people get yourselves in this position that, that if you, you know, lose one of your incomes or most of your income, that you're out on the street within three months because you can't handle the mortgage? Why even extend yourself that far? Hmm. Um, you know, I think that people should just, uh, you know, not extend themselves to the point that they're going to be ruined if they if they if they lose their job. It can happen, you know. Yeah. And um, so I didn't really feel a lot of sympathy, and I knew that Andrew Garfield's whole thing was that he was going to take the job because he had to. But somewhere in the beginning or the middle of Act Three, he was going to have one of his. I can't do this. I have to. Re- I can't. You know, invite this kind of awful karma into my soul. I'm going to find some other way to, to earn a living and right. I'm not going to do this to my to my brothers to people that I know and care about. But Michael Shannon is the is the cold prick who says I'm not going to be poor. I am not going to be on the street. I'm not going to be one of these people. And so I'm going to do the hard thing and and you know and evict people and you know make their I'm not the guy doing it. They did it by not being able to meet make their payments. Mm. So that's what basically it is, and it's uh, it's got its heart in the right place. And I, but I, um, I, I felt it was too heavily telegraphed, too obviously telegraphed, by uh, the casting of Andrew Garfield, who plays these guys who go through the pains of hell uh, spiritually, and then they get. The, he's going to play the ultimate role in that realm when we all see Silence, which is going to be out sometime in '16, um, the Martin Scorsese film. Mm-hmm. He plays a Jesuit priest who goes through much agony uh, when the Jesuits are persecuted and murdered by the religious forces in Japan in, I think it's 17th century Japan, sometime right, in the 1600s. Right. Do you know anything about silence? No, oh. just what you know. Okay. Just what you yeah, know. I don't, but... I don't know very much. But I know that it, it does not, it, it's pretty horrible for poor Andrew Garfield's character. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And, I, you know, it's good it's not coming out because it would be maybe a little too close to The Revenant. So, um, I mean, just in terms of, you know, tone and theme. And, and, you know, some people did, to test screenings are all happening right now. Apparently, people have seen uh, Hateful Eight. People have seen Joy. People have seen Bridge of Spies. Um the Revenant hasn't tested yet, but but it's weird. Like there are all these people out there who've seen all these movies that we just don't talk to or know. But <clears throat> the, you want to talk about that on this podcast, or you wanted to be? Um, what well, did you hear about Bridges Pines? Did you hear anything? Not a thing. Oh, okay. Um, I'm guessing that it's going to be one of those Spielberg movies where, you know, it's kind of a memory lane thing, and it's going to be that Jaminski photography, and it's going to be right. You know, what happens, really? I mean, we all know that Gary, Francis Gary Powers, the pilot of the U-2 plane that was shot down, uh, eventually gets out, and that's what Tom Hanks' uh, role or function is, which is to negotiate a release for, for, for Powers. And it happens with a trade-off between uh, the Russia and the U.S., and they get, we, they, we give up one of their, our Soviet flight that we're holding, and then they, get, they give us Francis Gary Powers. And I don't see how it can be that thrilling or that... Um, it sounds like a nice medium-range film that's uh, going to be, you know, okay. Right. Not, 
you know. Probably will be like that. I haven't heard any any really negative stuff on it, and um, it's not like it's you know his his next best picture winner. So, yeah. but you know it's um, it's probably very solid Spielberg. It's it's gonna be not. It's gonna be more along the lines of uh, Lincoln and and um, uh, Munich than it is along the lines of Catch Me um, Catch mm-hmm. Me If You Can or War Horse or. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, it's not going to be a big sappy, it's not saving private Ryan or anything like that. It's going to be very subdued, probably like a lot of courtroom scenes, very quiet, you know? Um, so I know I'm going to love it because I love those kind of movies. So, um, yeah, sounds like it'll be good. I think it's going to be screening at the New York film festival next weekend. Yep. And we got invites on Sunday, I think is when we're seeing it. Um, I, I think I'm seeing it Sunday. That's right. That's right. Um, I haven't heard anything about Joy when it's going to screen or any of the other big movies. Hateful Eight, I didn't hear anything about what people thought of it. Well, I think someone tweeted out that it was great, um, you know, but that's it, you know, and who knows who it could be. It'd be a Tarantino fan. They would say anything was great, right? So Yeah, yeah. Um, but is there... Can you, what, what do you feel about what uh, Scott Feinberg and um, Stephen Galloway were saying about about what, um, about what Paramount and Megan Culligan have decided. The way Galloway put it, this was about the decision to introduce the big short as a, since it's a December release, rather than have it come out as a March or April 16 release, which I guess was what people thought it was going to be. Stephen Galloway says, quote, I was fascinated by this move to plop it into um, a Christmas release slot. You know what I think it means? Paramount's Megan Culligan obviously studied the awards landscape and concluded there's no film that can't be beaten, no film out there. And I, I, I wrote parenthetically, this means you, Revenant, Joy, and Spotlight. It puts the studio right back in the awards game after they, they really had no contender last year when Interstellar collapsed and Selma came out too late and didn't get the screeners out in time. So he says, I think they learned from that, not least the danger of having a movie appear so late in the game that nobody has a chance to see it. So it means obviously that they have to have this film uh, done by what's going to, I think it's going to have its big debut at the AFI Fest, correct? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, but the director on that movie, I mean, I don't know, are they eyeing a win with it? Because I, I, it's hard to imagine that that director could put out your Best Picture winner, but it could be a nominee, I suppose. Seems like a weird point to make that, that Paramount wants, that they say there's no film that can be beaten. Like, that seems like a weird way to approach. Can't be beaten. They believe that they're all vulnerable. They don't see a big... I know, but that that's, that sort of suggests that they think the big short is going to be a strong contender. And Adam McKay, given his uh, his comic history, mainly with films starring Will Ferrell, it does not indicate to you or me that he's uh, got another side of him that he's going to uh, unfold with this film. It just seems strange. But it would be really kind of cool and surprising if it did come out of nowhere and show at the AFI Fest and turn around and win. Um, as far as I know, that's too late to build a winner. Um, but we'll see. AFI Fest is too late? I think so. I mean, I think that um, we, you, American Sniper is your model for that, where American Sniper was about as big as you can get when you're opening that late. It's Clint Eastwood. Everybody's going to watch it. It made a shitload of money. Mm-hmm. He didn't get a director nomination, but if that movie had been released earlier, a couple of months earlier, you know, and it made all that money, Clint Eastwood for sure would have been nominated, and it, had, it would have a really good chance of, of winning last year. So I do think that it's a matter of timing. I think that it takes time to build a consensus. You know, you're, you're guns assisting on what you have been saying all along, which is that um, Joy, Revenant, and Big Short, and Hateful Eight are behind the eight ball and have a tough time because they're coming out late. Right. right. And I believe me, I'll be happy to be wrong because I actually prefer the Oscar race when the late-breaking movies have a chance. It's just that they don't usually because they get torn apart and, and chewed up and, and there's no time to recover and rally again for support mm. there's just there's no time everybody's ballots are in by january the uh, the voters literally have between christmas and new year's to fill out their ballots and so mm. they're sitting there with their families in aspen or whatever with a pile of dvds screeners right. to watch 
What are they going to pick? Well, they're not going to pick a depressing movie to show the whole family. They're only going to watch that if they have to late at night when everybody's gone to bed. Mm. Maybe in the morning they'll check it out. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll just watch the Clint Eastwood movie and call it a day. You know what I mean? Right. So they're going to watch movies with big stars. They're going to watch movies that make them happy. It's just it's a really it's a really risky game to play if you're if you're entering late, especially if you don't have a big name director. Right. Some can pull it off. Scorsese can pull it off. Tarantino can pull it off. Eastwood can pull it off. They can get people to put their movies at the top of the pile because of their reputation. But a lot of them can't, you know. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, I guess, uh, what's, what does this coming week uh, hold for us? Anything in particular that, we, that you haven't seen that you're hoping to see that you think might be good? <clears throat> it's starting to get interesting on a, just a pure release basis this around this time of year, and it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's not far fewer throwaways. Anything has your interest that you just haven't seen yet? Well, I keep getting bugged to see The Danish Girl, which I still haven't seen, and I need to see Brooklyn, which I also haven't seen. I'm, I'm wondering, my, my latest theory that I'm, I'm sort of wrestling with in my head is mm-hmm. two, two problems. One, what's going to win visual effects in a year where you have... The walk and you the walk's going to win. The walk has okay, to win. Okay, yeah, but you've got, also got Star Wars coming up. You've got and Star Wars is ILM and it's Star Wars and it's going to be incredible. And then you've also got um, Mad Max, which is all practical effects. So it's a three-way race right there, which is going to be an incredible race. I agree, it's a good three-way race. But boy, I think people are just going to go nuts when they see. I think so too. But you know that award, I was looking back through, and and it's almost always a either a best picture contender or close to a best picture contender it's it's um uh-huh. it's so if people really don't like the movie it's not going to win i mean then again interstellar won so it's possible but and every, nobody liked interstellar um you know the just, very same people that, that the my academy friend was telling me about the ones who were respectful of liked spotlight but didn't feel it had that round ron howard third act push that they liked so much yeah that emotional thing they're the ones that are, uh, you know, they're, they're the ones that are going to respond and probably have a place in their hearts for uh, the walk once they, when they see it. They're probably going to say, that was pretty good. You know, yeah. it really got me, you know. They're That's not going right. to be very sophisticated in their response to it. Well, yeah, sure. We'll see. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it's got a really strong chance. Right now I've got Star Wars to beat oh. everything just because I think it is going to be sort of off the charts. But we'll see. I mean, the whole how movie. Much, how, much, how much different can, I mean, we all know what, what it looks like to have a dog fight in space with the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the imperial fighters and everything. I mean, how much better? Well, they're going to have to. It's going to have to be, you know, better than it's ever been. It's going to have to be to top Jurassic World, to top, you know, Mad mm-hmm. Max, to top The Walk. I mean, it's going to have to be the greatest visual effects you've ever seen. So if it is that, then it'll win. If it isn't, then The Walk will win and, and should win. It's a great uh, Mad Max, though. Props to them for. All those practical effects. The other thing I'm thinking of is we're going to have a couple of different discussions coming up, which is there are all these movies with women in them. There's Joy. There's um, there's Room. There's Suffragette. There's Carol. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, we're still talking about five nominees. And we're talking about a mostly male, mostly white, mostly middle-aged, straight white men academy. And like how many of them... That, that, it's wrong to say that it's five nominees. It can be as many as eight or nine. It can... I know, but they only fill out five. And they're, some of them are going to put Carol down and some of them are going to put Room down. But mm-hmm. I'm just thinking, are we really going to enter another year where it's going to be you know, movies that are excluded because of this preferential balloting system? So I'm just, those are the things I'm thinking about and wondering about. What are going to be the hot top five movies? I think, mm. uh, I think Spotlight's one for sure. But yeah. so far, I don't. Maybe Brooklyn, um, but I haven't seen it, so I don't know. But you know, I don't feel like we've got our five yet, and I think this time mm. last year we kind of did. But mm. so mm. it is sort of wide open still, and and I'll be looking for those five. I always try to start the race with what are the five movies that would be nominated, if there were still only five. What are those movies? What are the strongest five? Brooklyn is probably vulnerable because it's very burnishy. It's very um, period. In a, in a very correct way, it's, 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 it's gentle and, and subtle, and it's performance-driven, and uh, there's almost nothing it does wrong, and um, it's so well done, and she's so commanding, and it's, it really is her movie. But uh, there are probably going to be a certain contingent, the ones who are impressed by The Martian and The Walk, they're going to say it's not 
doesn't pop enough. It doesn't grab me by the lapels. It doesn't mm -hmm. uh, lift me up the way others. And they're going to say it's too subtle or something. It, it, it's appalling that that's the way people, some people think in this town, but that's probably going to happen. Right, right, right. Okay. So we have New York Film right. Festival coming up, and then we have shortly thereafter AFI starts because it starts in November. Right. And then, you know, by the middle or beginning of September, you and I should have seen everything. Mm -hmm. Because any movie that wants to enter the race has got to get out there and should be seen at least by people before it's released to the general public. So that's the first week of December. We should have a better idea of what sure um, what what those films yeah. are going to be. Wouldn't you imagine that they're pretty much everybody, including Alejandro, they're going to have to have their films completely ready to be seen by before Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, right? Like right. The 20th of November or something like that? Yeah, if, I, I don't know if he has even has a locked picture yet. I don't know if he does. I don't know if they're showing it or screening it. I haven't heard anything. So uh, last I heard, they were still filming it. But hopefully... No, that was that they went down to uh, the southern tip of Argentina, what was it, a month ago? Yeah. That was just for the finale. Right. And if they're, if they're any kind of professionals, they had the whole thing more or less cut together before they went down there. And, uh, you know, there's any number of things that have to be finessed and CG'd and made to look just right. So I'm just like any director of who has standards, they work on it until they have to let it go because they can always improve it in some way. So, But I would think they're going to say to them, look, you've got to give this thing to us so we can start showing it by, say, the third week in November. Mm. You have to. So. Well. Okay, so we'll see. But fingers crossed, it's sort of a blind season right now. We're all kind of, you know, feeling around the room with our eyes closed. Nobody really knows anything, and anybody who pretends like they do, they don't know what they're talking about. So it's absolutely up in the air right now, the Oscar race, which is kind of a fun way to start the year. I mean, we, we think we know mm -hmm. certain movies that are going to go, but we really don't. We really have no idea. So, And that's, mm. I'm a little bit surprised by the... Academy person's reaction to Spotlight, although it does fit my theory of the frontrunner. As soon as you call a movie a frontrunner, people immediately take it and from a different perspective, and they look at it and they go, "Really? That? It's not that good." You know, it's I've, a, I've, I've been through this so many times over so many years. You know, people are alive and responding with every last fiber of their being, and they're getting it, and, they're, and the movie is lifting them up, and you come out and you feel like you've really seen something, and then you show it to the Academy members, and the whole mm -hmm. thing sinks down into the swamp, and they're all sitting there like, like slugs in their seat, and they're going, mm, right. not bad, yeah, not bad, you know. Exactly, yeah. yeah, and part of it is they don't, they really resent other people telling them what they should vote for and what they like, what they should like, like any movie that comes out, that's why it's so, it's such a bad position to be in as the front runner coming out of Telluride because that's immediately what people say. Mm -hmm. um, right. Unless it's a movie like The Artist or The King's mm -hmm. Speech or whatever where it's undeniable. It's going to win no matter what, you know. Right. But a movie like Spotlight is a more subtle thing. And you remember Michael Keaton saying he was worried that people were going to hype it up too much, you know, and that they wasn't going to be able to live up to that hype. And, and It does, though. I think it improved. I do, too. My second viewing of it, I confirmed what I thought about mm -hmm. it. It didn't deflate at all. Yeah. I thought, wow, that is a really good movie. Really good. It's a movie I would sit there and watch over and over again for yeah. ye for years to come. It's going to be like that for me. One of those movies like The Insider, yep. All the President's Men, those kind of films. They're yeah. just they're great, you know. Yeah. yeah. Let's let's uh, wind it down and I want to ask you a couple of questions after you shut off the recorder. Okie doke. Nice talking to you. Okay, take care. All right. You've been listening to episode 110 of Oscar poker with jeff wells from hollywoodelsewhere.com and sasha stone from awardsdaily.com we'll be back next week with another episode the bumper music was you are the wilderness by vauxhall broadcast from the walking dead soundtrack and no fear of heights by katie melua thanks for listening i never walked near the end to fear I never swam far from shore never tried the secret door but when you give me love 
Break. 